Could I encourage you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, please, while you're finding the place. Let me say thank you to Richard today and to the praise team for their very considerable input into the service this morning. Uh, I've been here for three Sunday mornings, not last week, but the previous two and this one. And as usual, I've uh, enormously enjoyed being here in Windsor and uh, I think catching afresh a little sense of uh, the good things that are happening here uh, in Windsor Baptist Church and so it's been a great encouragement to me and uh, we're looking forward to hearing the Word of God today. Of course, as we conclude this uh, mini-series, I suppose you could call it, and uh, I've enjoyed doing it and preparing it and I hope that it has been of some encouragement to you as you think about uh, well, I was going to say starting out uh, in the autumn's work, but you've already, uh, you're already a little bit down that road. Uh, there's plenty of stuff happening. Uh, it's busy. Uh, but this is designed really to be an incentive and an encouragement to you. So let's turn then to the Word of God. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning, and we're reading from verse 10. 1 Corinthians 3 from verse 10. Paul says, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Amen. Some of our favorite holidays when the children were small were camping holidays in France. Well, you've had this experience in the days before Fly Drive. Uh, we used to go across to, uh, from Larne to Kernryan or Stranraer, alternately, and then a long drive down England on the M6 or whatever, and uh, then another boat journey, and uh, then another lengthy car journey to wherever it was we were going in France. And you will know if you've had this experience that boredom sets in very quickly. Most famously, I remember when we were in Letterkenny many years ago, and we had arrived, not quite arrived at the border into the north, so that's about, what, 20 miles or so, and our eldest boy said, Dad, are we nearly there? And we were going to Brittany. So uh, boredom sets in very quickly. And so what we had to do was to devise all kinds of strategies to relieve boredom. We used all kinds of things. We had quizzes, games, and I suppose principally music. And uh, we used to play the salty tips as they were then. And so a little song playing in the car was the song that Richard chose for this morning. So you and I had some kind of telepathic contact. We didn't, we didn't discuss this during the week at all. But this one still is in my mind, and so I, I actually didn't even have to look at the screen this morning because it transported me right back to a car journey down England. Don't build your house on the sandy land. Don't build it too near the shore. It might look kind of nice, but you'll have to build it twice. You'll have to build your house once more. 
great song. After 550 times, mind you, it gets a bit wearing. But you will know that it's based on the story that Jesus told in his famous Sermon on the Mount recorded in Matthew 7 about two people who built houses, one built on the rock, and when the text says the rain came and the wind blew, it stood firm because it had its foundations on the rock. The other man built his house on the sand, and when the rain came and the wind blew, it fell, the NIV says, with a great crash. The first man was wise in anybody's outlook, and certainly in the estimation of God, and the second was foolish. Now, that story and the song that we've sung today remind us that foundations matter. They matter in the business of house construction, and they also matter, and perhaps even more so, in the business of the Christian life and kingdom building. The Apostle Paul certainly thought so as he was writing his first letter to the church in Corinth in the early part of chapter 3 and addressing their sheer worldliness because of the divisions that were apparent among them. He drives home his point with the use of two very familiar analogies, the first from agriculture and the second from construction. The Apostle writes in verse 9, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. These two images, field and building, are actually found together in the Old Testament in a number of places. Let me give you a couple of examples We find them, for example, in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 10, and also in chapter 24, verse 6. So you are God's field, you are God's building. But it's the second of those, the idea of the church as God's building, that I want us to think about this morning. The first of them was probably a little less familiar to the Apostle Paul and his readers in Corinth in the first century. And uh, the second is more appropriate, it seems to me, for urban dwellers, very familiar and appropriate kind of imagery to use, and dare I suggest, more appropriate for the congregation here in Windsor, Belfast. This passage from verse 10 through to verse 15 that we've just read together is a word for the church here. As you step up a gear in the ministry to which God has called you, It is a a summons, if you like, a, a call to examine the foundations, because foundations matter. If you were here on the previous two weeks that I was with you, you will remember that we've been developing three related themes in the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians. On the first Sunday morning, we thought about what we possess in Christ, and then on the second, the ministry that we are given by Christ. And then this morning, we're going to think about the foundation that we lay on Christ. Now, as we come to this, I want you to see that there is a very clear flow of thought throughout this paragraph as the apostle develops his argument. There is the, first of all, of course, the stage of groundwork or beginning, and we looked at a couple of slides in that little talk to the boys and girls this morning about groundwork. That's the stage of beginning. And then there is the process of building. That's the getting the materials together and actually producing the building. And then there is the end product. There is, in Paul's view, the the reward for the completed task. Now, three very simple things that I I think stand out in this passage, and I, I want to underline them for us this morning. First, the master builder. Second, the only foundation. 
and third, the ultimate test. So the first of those three, the master builder. Now, it's very clear that the master builder in the passage is the Apostle Paul himself. In verse 10, if you notice, he describes himself as an expert builder. The two words that are used there in the original language, the first word is wise, and the second word is architecton, from which we get our word, well, you can guess, architect. So a wise architect. This is a a very striking thing for the apostle to say because he knew and his readers knew that there were those in Corinth who were setting themselves up as the wise. But Paul says he is the truly wise architect. He is the master builder who knew what foundation to lay and what materials to employ. Now, we touched on this, of course, earlier in the month as we were thinking about those in Corinth who had been deeply influenced by the Greek obsession with wisdom and knowledge. Remember what we said on that occasion? The Apostle Paul did not come to Corinth with those things. He came instead with a message of the cross preached in weakness and was convinced that in that the very power of God would be demonstrated. So the Apostle Paul is the one who laid the foundation in Corinth. Acts chapter 18, of course, records how that happened. It happened first in the synagogue. Remember, this was the Apostle Paul's practice to go usually first to the synagogue, and then when he left the synagogue, he continued laying the foundation in the house of Titius Justice. Foundations matter. And the Apostle Paul laid a foundation as a master builder in Corinth. Now, as you read this text, you will notice the little phrase at the beginning of verse 10. It says he laid this foundation by the grace God has given me. It's a very important little statement. By the grace God has given me. In one or two other places, of course, in Paul's uh, writings, Christians in general are given grace by God. For example, chapter 1, verse 4 of this letter. But here, it is likely that this is a statement about special grace that has been given to the Apostle Paul as an apostle, as someone who had a primary responsibility to found churches. This is one of the things that set him apart, if you like, as an apostle. And it's a point to which he returns again and again in his communication to the Corinthians. And so he says to them, for example, in chapter 4, verse 15, In Jesus Christ I became your father through the gospel. And then in chapter 9, verse 1, he says, Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, I am certainly an apostle to you. And so he's referring, if you like, to this special grace that God has given him of apostleship. Now, from our point of view, we need to be very clear about this. This was God's unique gift to Paul as an apostle and church planter. In this particular sense, he has no successors. The Holy Spirit worked in a a unique kind of way through Paul and the other apostles to lay a foundation for the Christian church at that time in the ancient world. But now he says others are building on that foundation. Notice the way he puts it in verse 10. Someone else is building on it. Someone else is building on it. Now, commentators, of course, uh, 
spend a lot of time and spill a lot of ink on who the someone else is. And there is this theory, you see, that the Apostle Paul is making a veiled attack on one or two other people who have already been mentioned by name in this letter. Uh, And so some say, for example, this is Apollos that he's getting at. This is Peter that he's getting at. Gordon Fee says, the whole paragraph is dominated by indefinite pronouns. Someone else, no one, each one, everyone. Uh, And so commentators say, there's somebody in Paul's mind here, and it may well be Apollos or Peter. Well, I don't think we can argue that. I don't think Paul is making any veiled attack on them. In any case, Apollos wasn't even in Corinth at this time. You can establish that from chapter 16, verse 12. Rather, Paul is addressing leaders in Corinth who are paving the way, if you like, or they're in the vanguard of division and dependence on human wisdom. There are people in Corinth, teachers, who have bought into the Corinthian agenda. They are building on the foundation with the wrong sort of materials. And the whole point of what the apostle is saying here is to warn them against continuing on their present course. Now, you say to me, what then is the point of all of this for church ministry today, and what's the point of it for us here in Windsor? Well, simply this, the church is built on a foundation that was laid in the first place by the apostles of Christ. And those who build on this foundation must be very careful how they build. There was, you see, a master builder to whom we must give recognition to whom we must pay attention. That master builder is the Apostle Paul, or if you want to make it plural, those master builders were Paul and his apostolic colleagues. Elsewhere, he says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. My friends this morning, we cannot ever replace the apostles or succeed them. That's obvious. But we can, like them, build on a sure foundation. How do we do that? As we remain faithful to their teaching. And in this sense, the Christian church continues to be apostolic. So, firstly, the master builder. Then, secondly, and rather more briefly, the only foundation. Look at verse 11 for a moment. It says, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So, if we want to ask the biggest question that probably has been hanging here this morning in our service right from the beginning, what is the foundation that is the theme of our service this morning? The answer is obvious. The foundation of the church, the foundation of any local church is Jesus Christ and the message about salvation through him? That's the answer. So, preachers sometimes say this, if you go away and don't remember anything else, there's a fair chance. If you go away and don't remember anything else that happened in the service today, take this with you. The foundation of the church and of this church and of any church is Jesus Christ and the message of salvation through him. Well, you say, I thought it would be a bit more than that. Surely, what about the finer points of doctrine and all of that stuff? Well, Yeah, but it's not really what Paul is saying here. In the mind of Paul, it's the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
Paul Barnett, in his lovely little commentary on 1 Corinthians, says, when Paul says Jesus Christ, he means Jesus Christ crucified. He means that we are to connect this to the cross. He means, conversely, that we are not to disconnect it from Christ and his cross. So if we ask an obvious question, how do we know that Paul is the wise expert builder, the wise architect? We know for this reason. He has laid the only foundation that can be laid, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, while I'm on a roll asking questions, let me ask two old Reformation questions. First of all, how can I find a righteous God? That was a question asked by Martin Luther at the time of the Reformation. How can I find a righteous God? The answer is through faith in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. And then the second question that was asked not just by Martin Luther, but a more general question at the time of the Reformation, how can I find the true church? Well, the answer is exactly the same. The answer is by finding a church whose foundation is the only one that can be laid, Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. And so it's right then for us to ask this question, will the church here in Windsor base its very existence, its doctrinal position, its shared fellowship, its rationale for outreach on the only foundation that is Jesus Christ. Back in 1934, a group of believers covenanted together to form Windsor Baptist Church. I picked up some of this just this morning. I arrived home on Friday without this information at my fingertips, and so I I sent Richard scurrying around the side of the building this morning to have a look at the plaque, and it's 1934 is the date of the foundation of this fellowship. Not talking about buildings, talking about people. 1934. Seven people were the founder members of this church. I guess hardly anybody here remembers them. One or two, maybe. Better be careful. But their names and their faces are all but forgotten. But they were the founder members of a church that was based on the only foundation. And today, you stand on their shoulders. You stand on their shoulders. And I trust that you follow their example as you commit yourselves to be the voice of Christ and the hands and feet of Christ in this community. Brian Rosner says this, any doctrine of the cross that treats it only as the entry point into the Christian life is seriously deficient. In other words, our understanding of Christ and him crucified is not just a little gospel snippet that we use only at the point of personal evangelism so that we say that's gospel, but everything else is something else. And so we use our doctrine of the cross just at the entry point to the Christian life. No. What this means is that the cross must undergird all that we do in the church, all that you do in the church this autumn, and in all the months and years that lie ahead in this fellowship. Therefore, never forget the only foundation, which is Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Foundations matter. And then thirdly, uh, it stands out, I think, from this passage as you come towards the end of it, the ultimate test. 
the ultimate test. From verse 12 onwards, we see that in the building envisaged by the Apostle Paul, the quality of the superstructure must be appropriate to the foundation. And so here he depicts a range of building materials and an ultimate test in which those materials will be assessed. The materials, as you read the passage, you can see what they are, gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, and straw. And the question is, what are we to make of those things? Well, I suppose we could say that there's some kind of symbolic significance to them. We might conjecture that. We might speculate, for example, and say that gold equates with some great work of personal evangelism where many people came to Christ. That's the gold. Silver, oh, could be doing an evening class at the Irish Baptist College. Just a thought. Costly stones, oh, that's something like signing up for a mission trip in the summer. Wood, hay, and straw, oh, that's not giving as much as you really should have in the offering basket or bag. It's maybe saying you would help with that youth work in the autumn and then you didn't, or maybe just not turning up very often for the church services, wood, hay, and straw. Now, that's all speculation, and I don't think any of it is what Paul is saying. He he surely does not mean anything in particular by gold or straw. There is no emphasis here by way of contrast between the relative costliness of the first three and the meagerness of the last three. The concern of the metaphor is rather to do with the imperishable quality of some as opposed to others. And so if you think about this, you've got gold and silver and costly stones. They are materials that will endure in the fire. They represent what is compatible with the foundation. They represent what is appropriate to Jesus Christ and him crucified to his gospel, in other words. Anything else, wood, hay, straw, and in the Corinthian setting, the wisdom of the Greeks will perish because these things simply cannot endure the fire. So we ask, when then will this happen? The answer is in the ultimate test, on the day of the Lord. Gordon Fee says, just as day brings everything to light. Yes, we know that because there was night last evening and this morning you got up and pulled the blinds and it was light. And the day brings everything to light. Just as fee as day brings everything to light, so a day is coming when everybody's work will be exposed and seen from God's perspective. Well, I must confess, I'm a little bit in two minds about that. Not about the truth of his statement. But I have to tell you, I'm in two minds about the reality of that day, because I say to myself, what about my work? What about my work? Will it survive the test? Or will I, as the text says, suffer loss? I'm encouraged by the fact, let me say, that the Lord is coming. Because as Richard rightly said this morning, we we were praying about stuff that's happening all around us. And we say, sometimes, Lord, we don't know what to pray because the world and its trouble, it's so complex. But the Lord is coming. And I'm encouraged by that. But I'm also slightly fearful. Not for 
the business of eternal security or the matter of my salvation. No, I'm absolutely persuaded about that. Not because of me, but because Christ died on the cross and my trust is in him. That's why I'm sure about that. But I'm mildly fearful about the nature of my work because, you see, the Lord weighs our motives. And I've got to ask myself, is the work that I do for the Lord so that I might appear somebody or something special? There's a little bit of that in all of us, if we're honest. There's a thing called pride that lies at the root of the, all evil in the human heart. It's in all of us. And so we've got to ask this question, and Paul helps us to do it. So as the building of our work rises from its foundations, we've got to ensure that our work and our building is built of the same teaching about Jesus, his death and resurrection. For Paul says, the fire will test the quality of it. Verse 13. Now, notice that the fire will not punish, refine, or purify the worker. That's not the point he's making. He's saying that the fire will judge our workmanship to see whether it is of quality materials. The fire will judge our workmanship. Now, perhaps there were then people in Corinth who had long memories. Or perhaps they were familiar with their history because they may have remembered that in the year 146 BC, the Romans had burned Corinth to the ground. And then... In the year 44 BC, no less a person than Julius Caesar had rebuilt it. So as they think about their own context, they're thinking about a great fire. They're thinking about buildings that were raised to the ground by fire, but maybe some survived. And so they've got this image in their minds about fire and buildings. The same, says the Apostle Paul, is true of Christian ministry it too will be tested in the fire. And if it survives, the builder will receive a reward, and if it does not, he will suffer loss. Now, this reward is almost certainly a last day or last time's reward. Paul says the day will bring it to light. It will reveal the nature of our work. Then it seems to me we will hear either, well done, good and faithful servant, or alternatively, we shall suffer loss. Remember what I said, this does not mean punishment, but rather deprivation. Notice the intriguing statement of the apostle, he himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Now that phrase is reminiscent of a couple of Old Testament texts, for example, Amos 4.11, Zechariah 3.2, which both speak of a burning stick being snatched from the flames. It's the idea, to put it in our vernacular, of being saved by the skin of your teeth. I don't know whether you've ever heard that phrase. Just about saved, saved by the, the skin of your teeth. In other words, there is no danger with regard to a person's eternal security, the believer's eternal security in Christ. The suffering of loss here is not about the loss of our salvation. It's about our workmanship and the quality of that labor. Nevertheless, don't take this lightly, because as someone has said, this life is not a dress rehearsal. It is the one and only opportunity to do the will of God. This life is not a dress rehearsal. It is our one and only opportunity to do the will of God. 
So we must take seriously what the apostle is saying. The story is told of a missionary who was returning home after many years of service in Africa. He arrived by ship at his home port in New York. He was surprised to see that the U.S. President Roosevelt had been on the same ship and was being welcomed back into the port by a huge crowd of people. He'd been there for three weeks in Africa on a hunting expedition. The docks were jammed with, with what looked like the, the whole population of the city. A band was playing, flags were waving, the press were there to record the homecoming of the president. He stepped down the gangplank to thunderous cheers, applause, a, a shower of confetti. At the same time, the missionary walked down another gangplank onto the jetty. No one was there to greet him. He slipped through the crowd. He looked for a taxi. He couldn't get one because of the crowd. And in his heart, he began to feel a bit aggrieved. And so he complained to God with words like this in his mind. He said, Lord, the President of the United States was in Africa for three weeks hunting animals, and the whole world has turned out to welcome him. I've given my whole life in service to you in Africa, and nobody is here today to greet me. Nobody even knows that I'm here. And then, in the midst of his complaining, it seemed as if a still small voice in his ear whispered, but you're not home yet. You're not home yet. You see, it's possible for us to try and build the church out of every kind of conceivable material, human system, philosophy, but at the final judgment, all such building will be shown for what it is. And the only thing that will last, says the Apostle Paul, is that which is built on the solid foundation. And then we will receive, says the Apostle Peter, a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So that missionary, and maybe some in the congregation, and, and, and me as well, we need to hear this today, that if our superstructure is built on the solid foundation and built with materials that are appropriate to that foundation, we will receive a tumultuous reception, a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior. The master builder, the apostle, the only foundation, Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, the ultimate test, a sure reward for those who have built with the right materials. Let us pray together. Lord, forgive us for when we've failed you and when we've doubted you, and perhaps by our very actions have denied you. And help us, we pray, to serve you as those who are building with good materials on the sure foundation of Christ and his gospel. We pray for the work here in Windsor over the next number of weeks and months, and we pray that as folk here are building on the foundation of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, that the building here will rise to be a, a beautiful edifice, a wonderful fellowship, 
a place where people will come and hear good news, a place where the, the saints of God will be encouraged and built up, a place where people will say there is reality in that church. So we pray for us today in the years to come. We pray about the future. We look forward to that great and wonderful day when Christ will come, and then we shall hear his words and see his face. We look forward with eager expectation. But until that day, we pray that you'll help us to remain faithful, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.